Good afternoon, Wallace Chapman here on the panel at the new time of 6pm. Nice to have your company. Today, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon this afternoon defended the government's gang patch policy outlawing gang patches. Is this wardrobe policing or a genuine crackdown on gangs? That in just a minute. We're talking NCEA today. Some regions have experienced significant drops in achievement last year. Our guest today says the tests are acting like a canary in a gold mine. We talk about that and explain also from today that Brindewan Hills will close for two months. How will it affect businesses in Northland? Uh, and if you are in Northland listening to this, get in touch. We have the CEO of the Northland Chamber of Commerce on this afternoon or this evening to talk about that. And an economist on the panel proposing a solution for the benefit. He says, scrap the system and let's start again. Also, a global music superstar playing in Australia, Taylor Swift made headlines by referring on stage to a small but hugely popular indie film when she said, tell him he's dreaming. So our question of the day today for you is this. What is your favourite quote from The Castle? I'll start. What do you call this? Chicken? Here's another. Dad, 4.50. For jousted sticks. Tell him he's dreaming. You can text me 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. And the 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, slot, we have the detail and episode one of It's Personal with Anika Moore. With me this evening, Ali Moore, a journalist and NGO co-founder. Ali, kia ora. Nice to have you here. How are you? Very well, very, very well. Nice to have you with us. Also today, Stephen Franks, partner at Franks Ogilvy and former MP. Stephen, nice to have you here. And to you in this new time. Yes, thanks for joining us at uh, <laughs> God, 6 o'clock. Still getting my bearings here, but here we go, 6pm and to this. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon this afternoon defended the government's gang patch policy outlawing gang patches justice minister paul goldsmith and police minister mark mitchell uh, yesterday announced the government will introduce legislation to ban all gang insignia in public places and create greater powers to stop criminal gangs from gathering in groups and communicating the policy expands on existing restrictions in schools hospitals courthouses the minister said that people didn't feel safe in their homes communities and public places for too long, gangs have been allowed to behave as if they are above the law. Now, last year, the Free Speech Union said banning gang patches is censorship. It'll do more harm than good. So there's been a mixed response to this. And with us is Michael Bott, who's a criminal barrister and human rights lawyer. Michael, nice to have you here this evening. Uh, good evening, uh, Wallace. Good evening, panel. G'day, Stephen. Hey, Michael. So it's been a big issue, hasn't it, across the 24 hours and indeed in the last uh, a few days. Gang patch bans, they've been tried before, Michael, through a bylaw in Whanganui 2009. The High Court then ruled the ban was inconsistent with the Bill of Rights. So I guess my first question to ask is, can it be done? Well, don't forget that a bylaw is subordinate legislation and the parliament's parliamentary sovereignty means that parliament can pass laws that are even inconsistent with the Bill of Rights in what's called the Section 4 override, which uh, Stephen will know about. I think uh, um, you might be interested, Michael, that I, I got that put into the Act. 
the <laughs> the over I made it, it was when the uh, local government act was going through, and I, with Nandor Tankshoss together, we demanded that the that it be clear that bylaws couldn't override NZ Bora. Well, that's yeah, amazing. Okay. So you're hearing it here from a horse's mouth this evening. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah right. continue, Michael. Yeah, the, the question is, will it work? Or is it basically, as one MP said, uh, wardrobe policing or about as sensible as banning pips and lemons? And it is offensive to the Bill of Rights, that's true. And I suppose a fundamental principle of criminal law is that people should be um, held accountable for their criminality, not with whom they associate. And that's one thing. And will it work? And in the past, for example, in Queensland, I thought there was a was brought in in 2016. There was a review a short time after, which has led to a massive revision of it. The other thing is that it doesn't really address the fact of why people join gangs in the first place. And, and there's a number of reasons for that. They're economic, they're cultural, and uh, we should perhaps looking at those. The other thing is that by going hard on gangs and increasing prison sentences and things like that for gang membership, well, what you're doing is you're sending people into basically gang recruiting centres known as prisons, and that's another issue. So does that work? The other thing to realise as well is that if we're going to be basically soaking up an enormous amount of the scarce resource that is policing because people are wearing patches, uh, you've got, at the moment, robberies, break-ins and things that the police can't get to. So you're going to have to increase the resource to police by a significant amount to do anything to actually meet the stated goals. Uh, in, the end, in the end, I think that this is all about window dressing and tub thumping. To okay. so- Michael, stay there. Let's go around the panel and, and we'll come back. Uh, shall we start with you first, Ali? What's uh, your thoughts on this banning gang yeah. pictures or no? It's interesting, isn't it? I was listening back to uh, an RNZ interview, actually, with Mark Locks from Queensland University, yeah. um, who was uh, t- talking about whether the uh, laws in Queensland had been effective. And he said they were because they were the first or one of the first in Australia, and therefore they drove most of the bad ones, if you want to call them that, out of Queensland and into other states. Um so my question is, I suppose, if it is well policed, as the minister and the police commissioner say it can be in some areas that have the resources, is that going to drive the problem elsewhere into places which perhaps don't have the same policing resources, therefore just moving the problem? Michael? Well, that's actually a valid point. The other thing is, how if you take the, the patch away from a person, they're still a member of the gang. Wearing a patch enables the police, members of the public, to track these people. And uh, if you get rid of the patch, what, what can you wear? A colour, like red socks. In the past, some groups have identified or shown affiliation by wearing an item of jewellery, for example, in the, 19th, in the 1930s, a safety pin, being opposed to a particular regime. And so there's a whole raft of, of, of ways to show an association as opposed to just a patch. And it does seem to be, I suppose, something which is not going to be particularly effective. And is it really necessary? Stephen Franks, where do you stand on this? Uh, I probably sus- I suspect that it won't work, but it'll be for a reason different from what Michael's suggesting. It won't work because the judges will sabotage it. 
uh, I think that the Wanganui one was sabotaged. That the 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 problem here is that uh, the, the essence of cutting crime and creating a norm of of law-abiding behaviour is to answer the question, who's in charge around here? That was the essence of the transformation in New York under broken windows. It's not so much any of the particular uh, focus. It's just people people adjust their behaviour by the, their appreciation of what's really the rule, not just the nominal rule and not who's nominally in charge. So my concern will be that uh, unless the government also... Uh, puts it beyond the power of the courts to sabotage it, uh, it'll become ineffective and a joke, and the the gangs will win. And I certainly, I think it could, I, mean, I understand from New South Wales, and I understand from talking to a very senior policeman with a lot of international experience, that there are, there are laws like this all around the world, and they're designed to say, you can't swagger around here intimidating people showing mm. that the forces of law and order are too scared to interfere well, with you. that's a really good point, isn't it, uh, uh, Michael, because an expert in drug markets and organised crime, uh, Professor Chris Wilkins at Massey, said there is merit to the government's new policies. They are intimidating to the general public, and the more you feel intimidated, the more you feel that authorities aren't listening to you. And think of living in, say, for example, as an example, Portiki, or when you had a massive gang presence there recently, and you just and there was that feeling in the community of of intimidation. Well, let's go back to the broken windows policy. The end result of that was the fact that certain ethnic sectors of the community were disproportionately picked on by the police. No, the end of the, the result of that was that the, the murder rate, rate dropped from... No, the, the person who... The, the murder rate dropped from 50 to 100,000 I listen to, to you, four. you can say the same courtesy to me. With Michael the first and Stephen. Yeah, the, the fact is that the main driver of, of, of that policy was Rudy Giuliani, who's distinguished himself in later years. And the fact is the murder rate did drop, but there were also socioeconomic reasons for that. Uh, one of the main drivers, for example, of the murder rate in the states is their firearms, po- is their firearms policy across all the states. But alongside that, for example, in a potiki, this touches upon the other thing. If you're going to create these laws, and you might drive people out, but the bigger worry is you are picking on people because of their gang associations, and the criminal law as it is already takes account of that. For example, with asset asset forfeiture in, in relation to crime, it's already, if you're, picking, if you're committing a crime as part of a larger group, it's an aggravating feature that can, elevate, that can aggravate sentence. There are already tools in place. Okay. The worry with this is that you're going to further increase basically picking on ethnic groups because of their associations, which may well be the result of, for example, poverty and other drivers. Did you want to pick up on something, Stephen? Yeah. There is absolutely no evidence that poverty on its own is a driver, and there is no evidence that these things are associated with anything other than criminality. The result might be a disproportionate imprisonment, but certainly for New Yorkers, the result was that they didn't have to turn out the lights. The murder rate dropped from 50 per 100,000 to 6 per 100,000. And, and, and the, the, um, it wasn't actually Giuliani, it was Commissioner Bratton. Um, Giuliani just happened to be the mayor who finally said, yes, go for it. But putting all that aside, if, the, if New Zealand does go round, down this in a half-hearted way, and we don't make sure it works, it will be worse than if we'd done nothing. Okay. Uh, Ellie, any other comments uh, on yeah, this? Just 
Just picking up um, Michael's comment that it's uh, it, it may unfairly disadvantage or target um, certain ethnic groups. You know, the the association laws uh, or the penalties around um, association with other gang members concerns me. How are you going to stop families from acting in the collective, which is the way of Te Ao Māori, and seeing their family members? I mean, how is that workable? We used to have this law. We had it before 1981, and we got rid of the consorting law then. We'd had it for many years. And it's one of those ones where the it should be all... Um, it, it, you shouldn't need it. it. It's problematic. But it was very useful to the police in breaking up challenges that they couldn't withstand because they were much fewer than potentially than the people who were assembling. Uh, I think it's dangerous, but I think uh, it might well be one that they, they really could not use. They could not apply the gang patch law without doing the consorting law. Yeah. Hey, just before we um, go, um, do you want to, um, because you are part of the free speech uh, union, Stephen, and they have said, well, they said last year, they put out a press release, didn't they, in November, that this is censorship and it will do more harm than good. Is that where you stand as well, that this is a free speech issue? Someone's just said here, for example, what would happen if I walked around in a Nazi outfit? Well, it would depend if there was a Nazi gang. Um, you know, it's 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 about the combination. But coming back to it, uh, yes, I'm on the Council of Free Speech Union, and it it uh, is strongly concerned. It's very concerned that this is a breach of of principle, and it will oppose the law because it's a matter of principle. My personal position is that the that both of these laws are, are probably. Um, becoming necessary because the police have admitted they've lost control in places like Apodagi and that that the uh, outcome, however, will probably not work because, as I said, you have to deal with the courts and I don't see any proposal to deal with that. Okay. Uh, hey, Michael, but thanks so much for taking your time for us this evening. I do appreciate it. Just one, just one point. Yeah, Peter sure. Brooklyn, in, his, in, his latest, in his last report before he left office, looking at drivers of crime, did note that poverty and ethnicity are linked and they're also one of the reasons for offending is the way we target that and we fail to address it. You know, as I say, legislation made in haste as a result of moral panic doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it's something that perhaps we could come back to for now. Michael Kyoto, thank you for your time. It's, tw- it's 22 past four. Uh, sorry, what am I talking about? 22 past six uh, p.m. on the panel, new time, uh, six to seven p.m. Uh, with Ali Moore and Stephen Franks uh, this afternoon. And there is a really big response coming through on whether or not uh, you would like to see uh, gang patches being banned, and indeed will it work. To this, the provisional results for last year's NCEA exams are available in sadly deja vu. For the third year in a row, achievement of level 1, 2 and 3 NCEA is down. Only 60% uh, achieved level 1, 72.2% passed level 2 and 66.2% got level 3. Perhaps shockingly less than half of year 13 students got their UE, just 47.2%. What is going on? With us is Gavin Brown. Gavin's a professor in education specialising in educational Assessment at Auckland University, Gavin Kiora. Kiora. Third year in a row, 
When do we stop blaming COVID and look to other factors? Well, we should always look to other factors that have been well established. I think the Coleman Report in 1966 in the United States established definitively that educational achievement was strongly influenced by socioeconomic deprivation at home and kids arriving at school without the language and uh, nutrition and health and home background factors that would help them do well at school is being well established. So I think we have, there's there's no argument that that's a starting point when uh, kids are struggling at home because of no fault of their own, then they're going to find school hard. Is there anything within the NCEA assessment system itself that uh, warrants real attention to you, Gavin? Uh, no, I, I'm a big fan of the NCEA system because it uh, doesn't insist that things that are practical, that are performance-oriented, have to be put into a final end-of-year three-hour written exam. So that's a huge step forward compared to what we used to have and what other countries have overseas. So I don't think NCEA is the basic problem. I I have a suspicion that uh, the fact that a lot of students arrive in high school working at level curriculum levels two and three instead of the expected curriculum level five create these knock-on effects when it comes to NCEA. Kids are not arriving ready. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Uh, the NCEA kids are not arriving uh, uh, ready. Ali, I was reading this interesting article and uh, they were talking about school certificate, uh, quoting here, if you are 49%, you were a fail. If you were 50%, you were a success. <laughs> the, you know, and it brought back some pretty big memories, including university entrance. What of this topic for you? I, I remember falling to my knees in front of my maths teacher in year 11, this is in Australia, so second last year of school, um, having passed my maths exam with a, a, I think it was 50 out of 100. Yeah, that's it. And I wouldn't have been able to go on to the following year without getting that score. So, um, yeah, no, I oh. feel you. Um, I, last year I was – there were. I was struck by uh, the story that you might have seen. Um, it was a beautiful um, mini documentary, actually, about students in um, Manurewa and, and other parts of Auckland who are working up to 50 hours a week to help support their families and still, you know, trying not to drop their studies and being assisted by um, people like Pete, Pete Jones, who's the, the principal of Manurewa High School, um, in creative ways to be able to keep up with their schoolwork while they're having to um, work to help their families, you know, sometimes up to 40, 50 hours a week because there's no other option. Um, so I think there's a lot of really complex things right. at play here. And I think it's it's wrong to just wave away COVID, Wallace, because oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> it'll have a long tail. It'll have yeah. a long tail of consequences. No, it wasn't wasn't waving it away indeed. But um, Gavin, can you stay there and we'll get Stephen on and you can respond to both. Stephen Franks. It's it's not an area where I, I really have 
I, I don't have any solutions. And I look at the truancy figures, for example, and just despair. Right? If mm-hmm. society just not not willing to create the kind of sanctions that were around when I was a kid, my parents would would have been too scared to not have me turn up to school. But I don't know how you recreate that in, in a modern society or in our society anyway. Do you have any ideas on that, Gavin? Because that is one thing that I can clearly recall with uh, Stephen. It would it would have never occurred to me. I'd, I'd be shaking in my boots if I took one day off um, school truant. I, I, I think truancy and work uh, are two symptoms of a deeper problem in New Zealand society where uh, kids are being put under pressure to perform at school while also feeling they have obligations to their families. And families struggle with fulfilling responsibilities. I remember many years ago as a high school teacher talking to a parent uh, about the child's reading abilities and suggesting that after dinner the father should read to the child. Um, and the dad said, and when am I going to do that when I have to go to my second job after dinner? And this is the reality that too many kids are living with. Their parents are under such financial stress that what was normal back in the 50s and 60s where we had one stay-at-home parent and 3% mortgages guaranteed for 30 years, that world doesn't exist anymore and people are struggling to put food on the table and a roof over the house. Oh, that's wet defeatism. They were much poorer no. then. They were much poorer then. And, and, and uh, there's always been that sort of stress. Pretty much all of us had a job after school, not because we, we had to, but because we wanted to for many of us. But the, the situation is you can only make that case if you find that the people who are failing are the ones who are doing the extra work. I doubt it. The, the research there's a whole lot of Asian kids who will be doing heaps of extra work in their, in their shops or helping their parents. Yeah, and there are a lot heaps of Asian kids who are, don't do any chores at home because they're the, sir, the, they're the prince or princess being helped by the family to study and succeed. The, the, the research says that up to 10 hours of work a week doesn't hurt and may improve performance. Over 10 hours a week, it's going to have an impact on school learning. Of course it will, but we still need to know whether the people who are failing are the people who are doing the long hours. Some will be, but most aren't. Professor Brown, uh, we'll have to leave it there. I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Uh, Thank you for joining us. That's Gavin Brown, the professor in education who specialises uh, in educational assessment at uh, Auckland University, there is a really big response to um, uh, the banning of gang patches. Why don't you email me as well so I can keep look at them overnight? You can email me at thepanel at rnz.co.nz. Malcolm says, I live in Ohope. Do I st- still go to Oporiki for a stroll? Not really, no. Uh, a few years ago, Sunday morning, I popped down to a bakery. Five minutes there, there's a commotion in the street. Gang members throttling their motorcycles, uh, a car driven erratically. Did I feel intimidated? I did, actually. Along with other patrons, we bowed our heads until they passed, says Malcolm. And uh, a lot um, don't support the uh, patch ban at all in in, uh, talking about the freedom of rights of those people it is just gone 31 past six you're on the panel with ali moore and stephen franks it's time for headlines